Looking to stand out from the pack at your first job? When you earn a master's in management from Georgetown, you'll gain the skills employers value most, elevating your career prospects for years to come. Get started at choosegeorgetown.com slash MIM. Welcome to the Smart Driving Cars podcast. I'm Fred Fishkin along with Alan Kornhauser, the faculty chair of autonomous vehicle engineering at Princeton University. Hi again, Alan. Hi, Fred. Nice to be here at CES with you. Absolutely. And with us is Michael Fleming, the CEO of Torque Robotics. Thank you for joining us, Michael. Happy to be here. Give us, uh, for people who aren't familiar with Torque Robotics, the, the overall view of what the company's all about and what you've announced here. Sure. So at a high level, Torque provides our customers with the end-to-end self-driving software stack for autonomous vehicles. So at a high level, pretty much what that means is our software will sense, think, and act, similar to what you and I do driving from home to work every day. And here at the CES show, you've made some announcements. Give us the overview of what, what you had to say. So most recently, we announced our partnership with TransDev. Um, a leading provider of mobility services worldwide. Um, they are active in over 20 com- countries and also have transported 3.5 million people in automated shovels over the last several years. So uh, you're replacing what they have, or to what extent are you augmenting what they have had in those uh, many miles of around the world? Yeah, great question. So to date, uh, just about all the shuttles have been in closed courses and very simple environments. Uh, last year, Torque de- demonstrated our Asimov uh, vehicle fleet here at CES, not in a closed course environment, but on the busy, cluttered streets of Las Vegas. So by leveraging the Asimov self-driving software stack, that enables TransDev to provide its customers with a shuttle that's capable of driving in public roads, with mixed traffic, with pedestrians, cars, during the daytime, at night, fog, rain, and snow. That seems to do it all. What's it missing? Well, look, we've been at this for quite some time. We're, we're not a startup. Um, our startup. <laughs> our origins uh, originated from the DARPA Urban Challenge in 2007, where we were the third-place finisher. We've been able to commercialize that self-driving technology in some of the early market adopters, being mining and defense. So we're able to incorporate those lessons learned and pull that in with a partner like TransDev, which accelerates our mission and our purpose of saving lives, simply because they have a large customer base that's already in place. So basically, you've decided not to build the vehicle, but just do the intelligence and maybe the, the control stack on top of it. Is that right? Is that the right way to put it? That's fairly accurate. Um, you know, a long time ago, I, I learned the lesson. Focus is very key uh, at, at ensuring innovation and also ensuring you're the best in the world at what you do. Um, if you get your hands involved in too many different things, um, you end up not being the expert in anything. So as a result, we like to partner with the leading providers of um, shuttles and vehicles that are being manufactured, but most importantly, organizations that already exist and already have a customer base. Uh, it's simply the path of least resistance. Well, I, I put it in a little different way. I, I claim that I've known students that are 
uh, fantastic scholars, fantastic athletes, and party animals. But I've never known a student that was all three. <laughs> Maybe two. Some of them are two. None of them have ever been three. And so I've sort of been suggesting that you know some other people know how to manufacture and design vehicles. And some other folks know what the intelligence stack needs to be on top of it. And those folks should uh, partner up. And it seems like that's what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when we started this journey, there really wasn't a textbook on how to design and develop self-driving vehicles. So for the last decade, we've gone through that build, test, and learn cycle um, many, many times. Um, so we sort of know inherently what works well and what doesn't work well. The question that came up in the last press conference was, do you see this being a technology challenge, a litigation challenge, or a legislation challenge? And, and my response to that question is it's more of a, what does the customer and the consumer want? for a technology that may, they may not quite understand. So it's a customer requirements uh, challenge and striking that right balance between cost, performance, safety, and reliability. And where are we today in, in, in meeting, meeting that? Well, so it's a great question. It gets really complicated because there are a lot of different types of uh, mobility services. So if you think about it, the um, shuttles that are deployed here in Las Vegas the requirements are going to be very different than the requirements in, let's say, a D.C. area, uh, within Europe, within Asia. So I, a lot of folks are going down the path of the one-size-fits-all. Um, we don't believe that's the case. And but think about how you and I w would drive, and, and uh, your audience, uh, which is probably all throughout the U.S. and all, with the, all throughout the world, we have a lot of different driving styles that are very regional. And so how do we go about adopting um, not only the, uh, de defining the requirements, but also tailoring the appropriate level of self-driving technology to a specific region. And it's really a balance between safety and convenience. Because the safest thing to do is to stay at home, but it's not really convenient. The most convenient thing to do is drive as fast as you possibly can to your destination. That's not quite safe. Well, we hear, we hear these complaints. Uh, we heard it from a Lyft driver who, when we were talking to this driver about, uh, about the self-driving Lyft vehicles that are out there. He's saying, I don't, I don't want to be involved with them because they follow the letter of the law and nobody else does. So you're, is there a way to strike a balance here to, to get consumers behind this? Well, so let's talk about that a little bit because I think it's a really interesting and fascinating point. So on one side, we have over a million fatalities due to traffic accidents worldwide every year. 93, 94% of those accidents are due to human driver error. So at a high level, there are a lot of really bad drivers out there. So those bad drivers don't really follow the letter of the law. So if you want to be safe, it's very important to follow the letter of the law. But because there are so many bad drivers out there, they get frustrated by not only self-driving vehicles that follow the letter of the law, but also human drivers that follow the letter of the law. So I think you're going to see some frustration between um, vehicles that, that, uh, that drive safely and human drivers that may not drive that safe. Well, I've sort of termed this, it's, a, it's really a sociological problem. We're probably beyond the technology problem, or we, we have the technology pretty well in hand, or we know pretty much what to do. The problem is, is 
is, uh, well, I shouldn't say we know what to do. We, we know how to avoid the accidents or the crashes. Uh, we don't quite know what to do to deal with society and have these things be acceptable. So I take your previous answer and sort of suggest that it's really a societal issue. It's what, what the, if we're providing mobility, then what mobility are we really trying to provide and what do the people who are going to take that mobility really want? And, and what are they willing to deal with and so on? And the, then the issue is, is which segment of the population are we going for after? We're going after us. We need more mobility like we need a hole in the head. But there are a lot of folks out there that need mobility to basically put food on the table. And what about those folks? And who's addressing that? So uh, what do you think about that? Are they really just shuttles? Or I like autonomous taxis. I like the vehicles that carry one, two, or three people, not the eight, nine, or ten. What are your thoughts? So I think that's a good question. I think you've uh, hit on one of the... um uh, more challenging aspects of um, self-driving shuttles or robo taxis, wh- wh- whatever you. you like I, I to prefer call to call. I, I separate driverless from self-driving. Self-driving, we, we're in there able to take over. You're not dealing with the somebody's in there able to take over. Although you'll have an attendant, I'm sure. Right? I mean. Well, so, uh, you know, if we refer to the SE levels of automation, no, um, which I, 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 I know, I know, I, so I, I, please. I yeah, no, they're, they're terrible and people should, but go ahead. No, but go. And I think we <laughs> share a common belief that those levels need to be revised, you know, simply because level four, there are a lot of different dimensions in our opinion where you, you can sort of break that down. We focus on level four where there isn't a human driver, um, simply isn't. because in order to mitigate that 1.2 million in traffic fatalities, uh, which you know, 94% of uh, accidents are caused by you and I, the only way we're going to significantly reduce those number of fatalities is, quite frankly, to remove you and I yeah, you know, take, from that take loop. Take them out of the loop. I mean, there are different products. I, I've even called we should have new mode. You know, I mean, this is a new mode. This is different. I mean, we're, we're not in the loop, but go ahead. Yeah. But, but look, this isn't new. Um, th- this has already been done and commercialized yeah, yeah. Um, in mining and, and sure, within defense yeah, w- without no, anyone behind the wheel. Okay. Um, yeah. Now, the uh, traffic environment at CES is a little bit more complex because we have um, a lot of rule breakers. And so if you go to our website, torque.ai, T-O-R-C.ai, you'll see a lot of videos of uh, pedestrians, you know, at the last minute stepping out in front of one of our self-driving cars without even looking at oncoming traffic. Uh, We had an issue uh, last year where there was a vehicle that intentionally cut us off. The driver rolled down his window and admitted that he intentionally cut our vehicle off to see what a self-driving vehicle would do, which is, in our opinion, the need for this technology. Michael, you're being summoned away, and we're going to have to let you go, but let me just throw one thing out there. 2019, biggest challenge that you see for your company this year? So, you know, I would say the the biggest challenge uh, that that Torque has uh, today is um, selecting the right path of commercialization to go down. Um, There are are some um, um, applications that are going to emerge in the short term and some applications that will not be um, commercially viable until the long term. And there's a little bit of uh, ambiguity on, you know, what is going to be commercialized in the short term and the long term. So, you know, we're focused on delivering um, capabilities and technologies sooner rather than later. Michael Fleming. 
Torque Robotics. Thanks for taking the time with us. Absolutely. Thank you. Michael, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Our guest now is the CEO of a company called Regulus Cyber, R-E-G-U-L-U-S, Regulus Cyber, and the CEO is Jonathan Zur. Thank you for joining us, Jonathan. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. Tell us what Regulus Cyber is all about. So Regulus Cyber is dealing with a unique section or sector of, uh, of cybersecurity in a way, and that's sensors. Um, it's not, re- not really dealt with these days. What are sensors? We're looking at smart sensors, and the main ones or the three that we think are more important are um, GPS slash GNSS, so localization, timing, and so on. The second one is LiDAR, which we all know, and the third is radar. Today we focus mainly on GPS uh, security, which has nothing to do with connected car security, sometimes confusing, um, but it deals with actually non-connected attacks, so attacks that are in the real world, people transmitting against your uh, GPS, causing it um, to provide fake location, fake timing, um, and so on. So tell us what the problems are today and how you're going about trying to solve them. So again, when you compare it to connected car security, which had a very big buzz around uh, the events of uh, taking over the Jeep uh, incident, if you remember, Charlie Miller and so on. How long did they work to do that? And I mean, whatever, uh, two years was it or something? Never mind, but go ahead. Yeah, it's a good point. We don't, but but again, it is is a valid issue, uh, but it's well dealt with uh, these days. Um, however, the issue of spoofing and, and, and jamming sensors, spoofing, by the way, is a smart attack. It means that I'm transmitting a fake signal against your sensor. It could be um, fake um, LiDAR um, signals or laser signals. It could be fake GPS signals. And I'm actually taking over the system uh, from outside. So there's no anomaly in the system. Um, you just get a fake location and a fake time, and this can affect a lot of different systems. Um, and again, unlike connected car security, maybe uh, this is already happening in real world. Um, there's been 2018 was pretty bad. Uh, there were attacks in the Black Sea. There was a famous attacks, attack on drones in Hong Kong, causing over a million dollar of losses uh, through an attack on the GPS. Uh, actually, the European Union says that 7% of GDP of Western countries depends on GPS. It's everywhere. It's in uh, not just in cars, so it's in every financial transaction, in banks, in ATMs, uh, it's in critical infrastructure. Every cell tower has a GPS uh, for, uh, for timing and so I on. I say it's in all of our phones. Yeah. And definitely that's the biggest, uh, the biggest infrastructure that holds um, and is dependent on GPS is obviously phones. Um, so the problem again, it's quite easy today. It became easy in the last two, three years. And the reason it only became easy to spoof these devices in the last couple of years means that the industry is not really ready. There are solutions in the defense industry, in the military, and there are uh, Senate committees uh, dealing with these issues for military, but uh, for phones, for cars, for IoT, uh, there are no relevant solutions out there. You'll need to spend something like $5,000 per car to protect the car today, so not relevant. We came out uh, just now with the first solution that we see as relevant for these sexos, um, because again, it gives them the right pricing. Uh, it's a different technology, obviously, that we patented, allows us to detect spoofing, um, and later on also mitigate spoofing. Um, and we're now uh, expanding it up to the chip level, meaning that the plan for next year is to provide an IP core, which is eventually an algorithm that can be incorporated into GNSS chips, so the lowest level of the technology, adding detection and mitigation of spoofing. Yes, so it's uh, really important uh, that, that 
GPS is timing. I mean, navigation has always been about timing from sailors to whatever. It was always, uh, what's the time? Because once you knew the time, then basically you could start figuring out uh, where you are relative to Greenwich. And so, uh, you know, that's key. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's where GPS is. And it's uh, always sort of been susceptible to doing that. Um, uh, and they're really, uh, you know, two various aspects to it. One is a military aspect, which all has all the, the, the support on that because they've realized that the, this could be attacked for some time. And then there's the commercially available bands. And uh, so I guess that's where you're working. You know, they're in the public and uh, the, the media, there's a perception that maybe some of this uh, autonomous vehicle technology uh, is really susceptible to hacking. We've spoken, we've had guests on our podcast. Ralph Nader brought up the idea of one of the reasons to go slow with this is because this stuff can get hacked, is the way he puts it, and, uh, and put us all at risk. So obviously it's true, and I think it's, it's the first time in history that you're actually taking the man uh, or, or, the, or the person completely out of the system. Usually you would, you would have some, some kind of a control. If you're under an attack, you can stop. If it's an airplane, you have the pilot. And if it's a computer, you can shut it down. Of course, you can get a lot of damages. But this time, it's the first time that you actually put people inside a machine that has 100% of the authority to decide what to do. So obviously, you don't want any opening for someone to be able to, to change this and allow this machine to decide with no one there to, to stop it or to make the change. Um, and yes, a lot of the systems are hackable. Uh, obviously, the internet connection, so that's connected car security. Uh, but other aspects as well. Again, the sensors and the GPS are now becoming, uh, after, after they figure out the connected car issue, they're now um, starting to look at the sensor issue. And, and we see this change. A year ago, when we were talking to OEMs, they didn't really know uh, what we were talking about. And a year after, they already have teams dealing with uh, GPS, spoofing the GPS uh, of, their own, of their own systems uh, and looking at it as an issue. Um, there's no one system that is, you know, that if you will attack, you will gain full control of, of, of the car. Uh, but again, the reason that this is either taking uh, people or taking goods um, means that you want to protect any opening. The way. That's how we see it. And how far along are you in, in being able to, to safeguard the technology in our, in our vehicles, et cetera? So from our point of view, looking at the GPS, we're coming out now. These days, we came out with the first version of our solution, which is aimed at OEMs, allowing them to basically replace their current receiver. They all use um, quite basic GNSS receivers, um, cheap, cheap receivers that they use for their cars. Um, so we allow them basically to, to replace this receiver with a receiver that we provide that has our spoofing detection technology. That's the first phase, first phase, phase which is important for them. So we're not mitigating, but we are detecting, and that's... Uh, maybe the most important thing because once you know that you're under an attack you can uh, use any other sensor you can stop using the GPS the issue is the issue is using fake information uh, of the GPS the next phase coming out next year will also allow us to mitigate and then we have the full solution meaning that we can one alert the system and say look the GPS signal you're traveling in now is fake two will keep giving you the real signal because we basically identify a spoofing attack means that someone is is putting a fake signal on the real signal, so the real signal is there, it's just very hard to identify it. So we allow them to, one, say there's two signals, and say this one is fake, the other one is real, keep using the real one. 
Yes, and it's uh, critical to the whole situation uh, with respect to uh, using GPS, and GPS is sort of fundamental. But if you don't have it, I guess, you know, you can revert back. Uh, my goodness, uh, I don't have a GPS receiver on my head, so I, I think I can get up and walk out the door. But, uh, but uh, at least one, one isn't relying on the, uh, the fake information, which is the key piece that you're trying to bring to it. That's very true. Um, this, the second thing that you mentioned before um, is that actually people, when you say GPS, they think about navigation. But when we say GPS, we think about a much wider uh, scenarios. For example, V2X, V2V, anything that has to do with syncing the system, syncing a fleet, syncing two cars or three cars with infrastructure. The only way to do it is based on GPS time. So you won't be using it all the time, but you do need this timestamp to sync the system. And if that is fake, um, we can all imagine that it can cause uh, some very big issues. Um, and just think about, by the way, Lyft, Uber, they're completely dependent on GPS, for example. Right, and it is the timing. It, you know, people don't realize that, that in some sense, so that's what GPS receivers do. They, you know, they have four pieces of it. They're trying to get four pieces of information, X, Y, Z, and T, uh, from those signals. And uh, those, are the, those are the key. What about the vulnerability of uh, the remote control systems that, that, that some companies are looking at when it comes to getting truly driverless uh, vehicles on the road, having somebody in a room being able to control multiple vehicles? How susceptible would they be and, and what can be done? So this is more related to the connected car uh, security issue because eventually it's, it's controlled from afar, probably on the 3G, sorry, on the 4G, 5G networks. So it's, again, it's an issue of securing, securing those networks. I see that as a transition, uh, transition period, and I think that's how everybody looks at it. Um, it will take time, and people will be probably monitoring cars from afar, but we all understand that this is not something uh, scalable, and this is not something that, we, that the industry is looking to have um, indefinitely. Eventually, you want the cars to be autonomous. You don't want someone to be driving them from afar. You didn't solve any any problem that way. Uh, yeah, but you, you would do that only in an emergency situation or when a car breaks down or something like that. I mean, yeah, but, yeah, but, but, but if some nefarious organization or person wanted to get in, uh, that, that, that was the point. That so I have, actually, <laughs> I have actually maybe an interesting example uh, that relates to it. Um, eventually, these people will be monitoring the cars, but they will be monitoring uh, several cars, obviously. Right. Uh, there was an attack at the Black Sea against ships this year. So um, it was a GPS attack. It affected about 12 ships. It was a very simple attack, and it jumped the, sh the ships from sea to land. So obviously everybody could say that something is wrong with the GPS, but it took the crews of about 12 big container ships about five minutes to understand uh, that something bad is happening. And by that time, a lot of the ships actually turned 100, 180 degrees. So from that, we can understand that, you know, unless you're really focused on this and you're really waiting for something like that to happen, it could take you uh, time to understand that this attack is happening against the GPS. And again, we're not talking about those uh, crude attacks where you jump a location. We're talking about very, very uh, sophisticated attacks where the changes are very small, but they do affect the system, the timing, the synchronization, and so on. So this will not drive your car off the road, obviously, uh, but it can cause a lot of, of headaches to the system as a system. For more information on, on all that you're doing, where do folks go? Ah, so we have a nice website. Uh, feel free to go in regulus.com. Uh, there's quite a lot of information there and always happy to answer emails. And it's spelled R-E-G-U-L-U-S. Jonathan Zur, thank you for taking the time with us. Thanks again for inviting me. You know, it's been great to have you. Thank you very much.
Our next guest on the Smart Driving Cars podcast is Bill Latino, Vice President of Sales at a company called Arbe. Thank you for joining us, Bill. Well, thank you for having us. Give us the, the overview, first of all, of what Arbe is all about and what you're doing with autonomous vehicles. Sure. So we're actually developing a, a 4D imaging radar for um, autonomy driving, actually for safety. Uh, we can uh, handle any level two, three, four, five requirements. Um, so our radar is an imaging radar. It gives you a image very similar to LiDAR or camera. Um, so you can actually detect the entire surroundings uh, around the vehicle with this radar and you get a very clear uh, picture. And we can see um, stationary targets as well as moving targets. Today's radars um, typically only see moving, moving targets at a very short range with um, a very narrow field of view. Uh, our radar has a field of view of 100 degrees in um, horizontal and 30 degree in vertical. And we have a angular resolution of one degree by two degrees. And when we mean by angular resolution, it's the distance between two objects. So we can actually see separation of targets very easily. Uh, so we can see um, pedestrians walking next to each other. We can see um, vehicles very close by. We can see a motorcycle next to a car. We can see a motorcycle next to a truck. Uh, we're able to distinguish uh, objects very easily, which in a lot of cases today's radars cannot do, uh, especially if, that, if you have one target that's um, stationary, say a, a truck underneath the bridge or a car underneath the bridge. Uh, today's radars have a difficult time uh, seeing that. And some of the accidents that you've read about are just that. The radars are picking up, are able to pick up moving targets, but when there's a stationary target, it, it doesn't it doesn't pick that, that target up. And we see that with some of the cases in accidents in California, for example. So is that because the radar didn't pick it up, or is it because the radar decided to disregard the stationary object? Uh, in some cases, it, it was because of the number of false alarms. And so uh, if you have a lot of false alarms, you're going to be stopping every time you see a manhole cover or something in the road. And therefore, in order to avoid that, that constant stoppage, you have to um, avoid... Disregard. Disregard. So, <laughs> right. right. So, 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 so you, you basically so, have a trade-off between positive and negative false alarms. Right. So how, how, are you, how are you getting around this? I mean, uh, you know, how are you deciding that, in fact, a, a stationary object is not a, <clears throat> is not a false alarm? Because you're picking them up too, right? Yeah, we, we do. We, well, so we are able to pick up all objects. And right. And, and most of the environment is stationary. And our algorithms will be able to detect if it's something that, that's up... Um, Consequence, or if not, so we'll be able to uh, recognize that target and be able to make a decision on that, that target. So, is there any special sauce that you use to be able to do that, so that so, so that you don't have the false alarms, so that or so that you know um, you don't have the false alarms? Well, one, so we're able to um, see many targets as opposed to the current radars that are out there. And so we can see up to, say, 500 different targets in a wide field of view and be able to distinguish those targets. Um, 
So you're, you're, are you basically taking the pixel array of the targets that you get and discerning what's stationary? Of course, you, you get a velocity vector on each one yes. and then are able to segment those appropriately so that you segment them properly. Mm -hmm. So our algorithms <laughs> will detect them, be able to, sort, to uh, filter out noise, be able to determine um, if it's something that they need to, to react to. Are you talking yet about the, who your customers are? So I can honestly say we've actually been to every OEM and every tier one. Our model, our business model is such that we're um, selling to the OEMs because a lot of our tier ones are also our competition. They have their own radars. For example, uh, Continental, Bosch, just to name a few. Um, so they're very interested in what we're doing, but they also have their own teams. And so um, in order for them to decide on going with an outside supplier or a startup like Arbay, they need really some push from the, from the OEM. So our uh, challenge is related to get to the OEM, show them what we can do, show them how we are different, um, and then have them push on the, the tier ones. And our way we've actually gone to market is we haven't signed any uh, agreement exclusively with any tier ones. So, we're allowing the OEM to actually pick the tier ones they want to work with. We have one engagement right now with a European manufacturer and we brought the tier one into, into that um, engagement with us. So are you selling through any channels like um, Autonomous Stuff, or do you know those guys? We know, well, I know Autonomous Stuff from a couple you know, of friends. You know Bobby, right? Yeah. Everybody uh, knows Bobby. So we can yeah. if the yeah. time is right. So today our product is in a beta stage. So um, let me step back and say that we're actually a semiconductor company. We designed a, uh, a radar module to really as a, as a, a proof of concept. Um, we first did our POC around off-the-shelf components. So we use STH transceivers and a Xilinx uh, FPGA board. In September of 2017, we launched that proof of concept. We actually put this box on a car and we drove around and we're able to show um, really the output of an imaging radar. Right. Most people don't know what an imaging radar is. Yeah. Right? So um, we're able to show the output of an imaging radar, um, show that we can actually see clear separation of targets, we can see pedestrians, we can see uh, cars, buses, we can also see stationary as well as moving objects. So we're able to prove out that in concept, the antenna works, the algorithms work, and our um, thought process of adding a number of elements, a number of channels, gives you greater res resolution. And so we have the highest channel count on the market. Our imaging radar is a 48 transmit, 48 receive. And so it actually has over 2,200 virtual antennas. Our closest competition has in the 200 range. And that's um, one of the startups that's out in the market today. So the, the radars you see on today's cars are basically three transmit, four receive, 12 total antennas. And so they get, um, they're limited by the amount of resolution that the, the this number of channels are gonna give you. So if, if, if we if we could, would talk about the resolution in pixels or something, uh, how many pixels resolution are you getting out of this? In other words, how many X, Y, D 
and V points. You get maybe tw 20 points per, say, per car that you're going to pick up. Um, H, uh, so if I, if I look at my 100-degree field of view, in that 100-degree field of view, and 30 de you said the elevation, 30 degrees, what do you do about reflectivity with respect to the roadway, and how, you, how do you deal with those guys, those, those return so signals on that one? That's all done with the algorithms that we have. So we have to, to filter all that out. So, uh, so out of that, and you then get uh, basically how many data points per, I mean, if we could think of it in, in image processing. I mean, these are radar images, so I prefer to talk about them in sort of image frame sort of things. So. So uh, I forget the number of actual bins or yeah. information that you will have, but it's it's enormous, and it's one of the problems that you have based on the number of channels. Having this kind of high channel count, you have a lot of data to report. Right. That's one of the things that you need to solve. And so we're able to um, make some assumptions about the data um, and able to funnel the right the right data that we need to take a look at to uh, see that one image is out there, see the, the important picture that's in the landscape. So how are you dealing with basically the, the identification problem of, the, of object identification in these images? Are you using sort of modified uh, image processing algorithms or we're deep learning or whatever? Doing or how much of that are you doing? What, what, what's, uh, you know, are there opportunities to do more playing with that, that to improve it and so on? We are doing, we doing post-processing. Um, so we, we are actually developing a slam. And so that slam will be able to do uh, localization, mapping, and eventually, eventually classification through AI. Well, Bill, you're, you're the vice president of sales, so give us the the, the quick sales pitch of, of why customers who, are, who, are, who might be looking at this would, would be picking our bay. Uh, from a standpoint of we have a very high-resolution radar that is very similar to LiDAR. And capability at a very low cost. Um, radar can see through all weather conditions at a very low degradation. Um, so radar, unlike LiDAR and camera, can work in fog, uh, rain, snow. Uh, we also are developing our own um, chipset. So uh, with that, we're able to provide a very effective or um, very effective product at a, at a Relatively low cost for automotive, uh, so we can we can go into production today at a, at a price point that is very similar to say advanced driver assist when you're paying for that today, um, and we're able to handle things like mutual interference. Uh, we have patents around mutual interference, uh, so um, which is a big issue between because when you get out in the road, you're going to have a car with multiple radars on it, and you're going to have multiple cars with radar. And so, how do you handle mutual interference? And that's that's a very big issue. And we have that solved. And the fact that we can handle uh, pretty much zero uh, false alarms. Um, and the issues that you see today with with um, you know autonomy, autonomous vehicles, um, the accidents that occur is because of the false alarms. And you you do trade-offs between positive and negative false alarms. So. Um, Giving, and having to make that, those sacrifices, you're sacrificing safety. And we, 
we think that we solved that issue. Well, it's certainly, um, I agree with you that the, uh, one of the fundamental problems is the false alarms, especially on the, on the stationary objects. I mean, you look at, at least it's been my observation, the, the Tesla crashes, including um, the Joshua Brown one was because of that. And uh, apparently that's what got Uber with its, um, you know, tail, con you know, I mean, well, no, I've written it, so, you know, I mean, the false alarms cause them to turn it off, and, and, and in fact, if you look at the IIHS tests and so on, and you wonder why uh, cars continue to do, um, have rear-enders and can't even stop when the closing velocity is 12 miles an hour, I mean, my goodness, cut it out. Uh, it's because, of course, it's disregarded uh, the fact that it got a signal from a stationary object because uh, the driving environment involves usually stationary objects. Every once in a while, there's a car in front of you. Every once in a while, there's a pedestrian, but there's always a tree. There's always a, a building. There's always, a, especially, my goodness, we have to have 360-degree view. I mean, mm -hmm. why in the hell do I want to see something that's 90 degrees from me when I'm traveling at 45 miles an hour? I'm, I'm going to be beyond it before it hits me, so never, never mind. I don't even want to go there. <laughs> Where do people go for more info on what you folks are doing? Uh, so you can go to our website, um, www.rbayrobotics.com, uh, or you could uh, find us on social media where you do a lot of work on social media as far as uh, posting some of our videos that we've taken. You can also go up on uh, YouTube, and we put all our videos of all our demos on YouTube. Terrific stuff. Bill Latino, thank you for joining thank us. Thank you. That's it for this special edition of the Smart Driving Cars podcast from CES. We want to thank our guests for joining us. You can find us at smartdrivingcar.com, find my tech reports at textination.com. Stay tuned for more, and thanks for listening. Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com.